just a word of warning, if that's the right way to put it. Um, but I'm going to pull a sixth sense on you at the end of the sermon. So be prepared. Okay, I'm going to. Okay. Listen, if, if Dave can do a soprano's mic drop at the end, I, I can do a sixth sense. Okay. We've been looking at the book of Jude, how Jude describes the false teachers against whom he is writing this letter. In fact, it seems to be the cause for writing the letter that he started out, that he wanted to share with them the great faith that they have, and then all of a sudden he, he sort of makes a turn and he wants to talk about this, these false teachers. The primary description he gives that they, in verse number eight is that they are dreamers. They live in a fantasy world. They live in their own heads. Specifically, they think that they can do what is contrary to what God says and nothing will happen to them. So we read that they pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, they slander celestial beings. Um, And then Jude gives us a contrast, or the readers a contrast, between what these false teachers are doing and what Michael the archangel did when he contended with Satan for the body of Moses. Instead of cursing Satan and saying, appropriately nasty things about him, because he is Satan after all. He said, the Lord rebuke you. On the other hand, the false teachers are seen as those who not only slander celestial beings, but they speak against things that they do not understand. But this is understandable because they are dreamers. They live in an unreality, something of their own creation. It might seem to someone who is simply reading the book of Jude casually that Jude is simply engaging in name-calling. He's just calling these guys different names, bad names. Uh, He accuses them of slandering and of speaking abusively. Well, it seems that Jude, in fact, is doing that. Um, But verse number 11, which is where we ended last week, and I think we need to correct some of the things that I said last week, he says... Well, if look at verse number 11. Let's make sure we get this right. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. He says, woe to them. This may sound like he's cursing them, but it is, in fact, an expression of concern. Alas for them, he is saying, their situation is tragic. And if they don't change, they're going down a bad path. They're going down the road of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. So he is concerned for them. He isn't simply saying, you guys are you know, nasty, so-and-sos. He is, in fact, greatly concerned for them. He doesn't want them to be like Cain, who was the first human being born into the world and became the first murderer, who was all about himself, self-centered. That's why he killed Abel. How about Balaam, who was in it for the money, a prophet who was called on to curse Israel, and he did not, but he found another way to bring destruction by seducing them into false paganism or into paganism and false worship. Or they might be like Korah. Of the three, Korah was the only one who immediately received judgment from God. As far as we know, Cain lived a long life. Balaam did die sometime later when the Reubenites were taking over the east side of the Jordan River. Um, 
But Korah rebelled against God's authority in Moses and Aaron, and God had the earth open up and swallow him and his family. Jude doesn't want this to happen to these false teachers. He is concerned for them. They're on the road to ruin. He doesn't want that to happen to them. Today we pick it up at verse number 12. And in verses 12 and 13, he gives us five metaphors, five pictures from nature, which illustrate further what kind of people these these people are. The metaphors come from nature, from air, from earth, from water, from sky. Verses 12 and 13, follow along if you would as I read this. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you, Without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. They are blemishes. This presents problems because different translations put this differently. Um, They are hidden rocks. The expression means literally, it's like a reef that is just below the water surface and as you're sailing along in a boat, you may not see it. And then in fact, you will crash into it and sink. And different people translate this different ways, as I've said, and people have support for different reasons. I I think what we have to see is that these people are self-centered. We've already seen that, okay? Their conduct is visible to all. We've seen that as well. But the people around them may not be aware of the danger that they represent. That they are, in fact, like hidden rocks, like shoals, like reefs just below the surface that can, in fact, bring great destruction. And Jude points out one particular activity of the church, what he calls love feasts. This is the only place in the New Testament that we find this expression. Um, And it doesn't refer to ordinary social meals, you know, come over for dinner type of deal, but rather a communal meal that was eaten by the believers. What we think would happen is that the, the People of God would gather and they would have a service. They would have the Lord's Supper, as we have. And then after the service, they, in fact, would have a meal together that Jude refers to as a love feast. Um, Paul seems to refer to this in 1 Corinthians 11. If you remember the passage where he talks about people going ahead uh, and, and neglecting other people, but he doesn't refer to it as a love feast. Only Jude does. In the ancient world, as in many cultures today, not in this country, certainly, but who you ate with was an indication of who you were, what your status was. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you who you are. In the ancient world, tell me who you eat with, and I will tell you what your status is and who you are. This is one of the things that really offended people about Jesus. He would eat with anybody. I mean, we have him going to the house of Simon the Pharisee, but then he's accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. There is one New Testament scholar who, in fact, argues this is why Jesus was crucified, because he ate with the wrong people. He is upsetting social convention. 
So you have the church gathering for these love feasts and these hidden rocks, these dreamers are coming in and they represent danger because they seem to be hidden because nothing's happened to them. If they're the bad guys, is not God in fact going to judge them, strike them dead like Ananias and Sapphira? So they present real dangers. By the way, in Acts chapter 20, we read, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. This implies not the Lord's Supper primarily, but a meal, that the believers, in fact, would come together. But these guys that Jude is talking about, they come to these meals not because they love the brothers and the sisters, but because they want to satisfy their hunger. They are participating in these meals. And it's... Why is Jude so concerned? They're eating. What's wrong with that? Because he sees them eating not to express mutual concern and love for the brothers, but to gratify their own desires. It's all about them. It's not about here we are with our brothers and sisters. It's like, I want to eat. This is for me. But he goes on to say that they do it without the slightest qualm. The King James says, feeding themselves without fear. And one would say, why would you be afraid while you're eating a meal? Well, because you're doing the wrong thing. You're doing it out of selfishness. You're not doing it out of love and concern for the brothers. They are what Jude says, they are shepherds who feed only themselves. The shepherds are to take care of the sheep. They're to make sure that the sheep get fed. But these shepherds, they don't care about the sheep. They care only about themselves. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord speaks against such people. Because my shepherds do not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore I am against them. This is what Jude is telling us. These false teachers, in fact, are not true shepherds. They have not been entrusted with the care of God's people. I think Jude is simply using the metaphor that they're just like shepherds who are in it for themselves, not caring for the sheep. Just a side note. In our culture, food or eating is seen as a morally neutral activity, okay? that there are no moral implications. There may be nutritional implications that you might try to say has some spiritual overtones, but for the most part, it's something that is morally neutral. You just make sure you eat the right, don't eat any junk food, you know, eat the right stuff. Um, and so it may seem strange to us that Jude makes such a big deal about how these false teachers are eating until you read what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in the next chapter, he continues, For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. We have fallen into the trap of dividing life into two categories, the spiritual and the secular, if you wish. 
The Bible doesn't see it that way. And so what these men are doing is in fact sin. It is wrong. They are hidden rocks. The second is that they are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. I have in my notes living in Los Angeles, we may not be experts about this, but this past week we have in fact experienced this. As we've had the rain, we've had the clouds and the wind has blown them along. Um, But not every cloud brings rain. We have clouds throughout the year. We don't get rain that often. That's what these people are like. They, they appear to promise something. We're going to get some moisture. We're going to get some rain. Things are going to turn green again. But in fact, the clouds don't drop the rain. These men do not, in fact, contribute anything to the well-being of the believers with whom they deal. They are like waterless clouds. They are barren, if you wish. In Proverbs 25, we're told, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Wow. These false teachers boast that they have the grace of God, and yet they have nothing of grace to give to the people they deal with. They are blown along by the wind, which indicates that they are unstable. It points to their instability. And it implies that the same thing will happen to those who follow with them. The third metaphor is that they are autumn trees. At first reading, this might seem like the wrong metaphor to use. um, Because if you've ever been back east in autumn, it's spectacular. The trees turn colors, the leaves, I mean, it's just wonderful. Um, But Jude has something very specific in mind. And it's tied to the previous metaphor about clouds without rain. The autumn trees are qualified by three phrases. They have no fruit. Well, yeah, because the harvest has passed, okay? Um, By autumn, anything that they have produced is now gone. It's either harvested or fallen fallen off the trees. The leaves have turned colors and they have dropped as well. And Jude is not saying that this is the case with the, the false teachers, that they had fruit and they no longer do, okay? They never had fruit is what he's saying. They're not like regular trees, and now he's talking about them in the autumn season. No, they are fruitless. They've never borne any fruit. Secondly, they are uprooted. A a tree that is unproductive may in fact die, will not be able to remain rooted in the ground. So they are fruitless, they are lifeless, they are rootless. And then he goes on to say they are twice dead. They are dead through and through. They are dead in appearance, like an autumn tree, and they are dead in reality. The fourth metaphor is they are wild waves of the sea. They are restless, which if you're out on the sea can seem really beautiful, but if you're saying this is what a person is like, then then it gets a little bit disturbing. Isaiah 57 tells us, but the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. The next verse in Isaiah 57 you may be familiar with. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is this restlessness. They foam up their shame. The the expression that Jude uses here is very rare uh, in Greek. It's quite used, uh, quite rare. It was used by a poet to refer to seaweed and the rubbish that is washed up on the shore. And 
Jude's like, that's who these guys are like. One writer put it this way, false teachers in our churches will certainly get noticed because they leave a polluted mess behind them as a product of their self-willed ministry. Yeah, but that's after the fact, and Jude wants to cut them off at the pass. The fifth metaphor is that they are wandering stars. And to be honest, we're not exactly sure what Jude meant here. Um, Again, living in Los Angeles, we're not really experts on the stars. Um, The last couple nights, the skies have been clear and have been able to see a handful, but it's not like being out in the desert where you can just see thousands of them. Um, Some people think that he's referring to the planets, that in fact the planets move along and you can see that. Um, Some think he referred to shooting stars or comets, um, meteors. I think there's something else. Jude knows that stars don't move, okay? Wandering stars, they don't wander around. But what he is saying about these false teachers is, in the ancient world, people didn't have GPS, okay? So at nighttime, they would navigate by the stars, which you could do because you knew the stars were stable, okay? You knew there was a particular pattern. But these false teachers are just all over the place. So if you try to navigate your life by their teaching, you're going to be lost. You will be lost. So these are, in fact, people who are as dangerous as hidden rocks, as selfish as perverted shepherds, as useless as rainless clouds, as dead as barren trees, and as dirty as the foaming sea. And they are like wandering stars. You better not guide. They better not be your compass. You better not direct your life based on what they say. And now Jude tells us that, okay, it doesn't happen now, but their doom, in fact, is sure. Look, if you would, at verses 14 and 15. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. By the way, I just passed over there because we looked at it earlier, but if you look at the end of verse 13, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. We looked at that uh, when we looked uh, at the matter of hell. That's why I skipped over it now. Um, Verses 14 and 15, this is what causes people problems with the book of Jude. Okay. It appears that Jude is quoting from a book that is not recognized as part of Scripture. It's part of the Apocrypha. And in Protestantism, we do not recognize the Apocrypha as Scripture. Um, but I think if we're not careful, we will miss the point of what Jude is saying when we're trying to argue about, ooh, did he quote from the Apocrypha or not? Um, some people think that Jude was given this information by God, that he's not quoting from First Enoch, a book in the Apocrypha, that God gave Jude this information directly. Um, Possible. Some people believe that Jude, in fact, is not so much quoting from 1 Enoch as he is adapting the material to make his point, as he did with the story of Michael the Archangel, which doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. But I would remind you that 
throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, we have him quoting from pagan sources. In Acts 17.28, he quotes from Aratus, in which he says, we are his offspring. This is when he's on Mars Hill in Athens, and he is arguing that these people are superstitious, they have an altar to the unknown God, he wants to tell them about this God, and he quotes from a pagan poet to make his point. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he quotes from Menander when he says, bad company corrupts good character. That's not scripture, That's, he's not quoting from scripture, he's quoting from a pagan. In Titus 1.12, he quotes from Epimenides, let me see, Epimenides, yes. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So, are we saying that Paul endorses these men, that what they write is in fact inspired? Not at all. And so if in fact Jude quotes from First Enoch, he is not saying, well, First Enoch belongs in the canon. He's simply quoting from a non-canonical book, okay? But let's not miss the point. The point is the certainty of the fact that these false teachers will be judged. Enoch is identified here as the author of the quote. He is the seventh from Adam. That's if you include Adam and Enoch. Okay? We're told little about the man, but what we are told is simply amazing. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away seems to be one of the two cases we find in Scripture of someone not dying. That Enoch did not die, apparently. He just was taken by God into God's presence. The other is Elijah, when he was taken up by the chariot uh, into heaven. So Enoch walked with God and was no more because God took him away. Hebrews 11.5, in case you're wondering. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. A remarkable individual. What Jude wants us to see is that God judges based on his moral character, right and wrong, and there will be judgment. There absolutely will be judgment. Again, I think this is something that in today's world we struggle with. Um, so we need to be clear about something. God is holy. It is his character that determines what is right and what is wrong. When we say good and evil as a moral standard, that's not something that's above God, that God has to conform to. God is the basis of all morality. And so when he judges, his judgment is right. You will notice in verse number 15 that Jude uses the word ungodly at least four times. There's a reason for this. If God is the basis of what is right, then anything that is wrong is ungodly. It is ungodlike. God doesn't change. We do. But God doesn't change. And anything that we do that is contrary to God's character is ungodly. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness 
and wickedness of men. Godlessness is like being ungodly. And so Jude refers to Enoch in judgment, and we find the word ungodly mentioned at least four times. There's something else that, if we're not careful, we will skip, and that is the beginning of verse number 15, that God is going to judge everyone. There is a universality to his judgment. He's going to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly things they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's no escaping this and Jude wants his readers to know this. At the end of time, the Lord Jesus will return thousands upon thousands of his holy angels and he will judge the world. Jude's not quite done. Verse number 16. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. That is, they are just really dissatisfied. They're unhappy. They are grumblers. Someone who always grumbles can really be a nuisance. But Jude has something more in mind. It's someone who makes the background noise of criticism. Again, this is a word that is found only here in the whole New Testament. But in fact, it marked the character of Israel in the wilderness. If you read uh, Exodus and then in Numbers, God had miraculously delivered them from slavery after four centuries of slavery. He delivers them through the Red Sea. He provides manna. He provides water. And what do they, they grumble, grumble, grumble. It is the background noise. It is the soundtrack of their life, if you wish. By the way, after they passed through the Red Sea, for three days they didn't have water. And what did they do? They grumbled. They grumble against Moses. They forgot what God had done for them. Time and time again, Israel grumbles. God provides manna. They want meat. No matter what God does, it seems that it's not enough. They're grumblers. But I want to be careful in making this comparison. Um, Their complaints were based in Israel, were based on their situations, their circumstances. Because one could say, yeah, Damon, yes, God delivers them out of slavery through the Red Sea, but you go three days without water, one would perhaps tend toward grumbling and complaining. If they don't have food, one would want to have food. Okay. Yes, they've forgotten what God has done for them in the past, but yeah, their circumstances don't excuse, but you could see, in fact, why they would grumble. I think that as modern Christians, our complaints fall into two general categories. The first one, I think, is material, the, material, the difficulties of life. You want this, you want that. Uh, it's all about you know, possessions or health or things like that. I think these are reasons why, in fact, we may complain. 
The second one, I don't think we complain as much about, and these are the spiritual difficulties of being a child of God, of temptation, of sin, of the sin that stays in us. Um, how often do we say with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? I think it's more the material things, and our circumstances cause us to grumble. Um, Yeah. In Psalm 73, the psalmist describes one who envies those who are the children of God who do not have any physical or material needs. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. But then the psalmist goes on to say, this is what the wicked are like. We thought they were the children of God, but these are what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. They seemingly suffer no consequences for their sin. Pride is their necklace, they clothe themselves with violence. And then he says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. I've tried to live as God would have me live, but I kind of wish I had what the wicked people have. In Proverbs 23, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There's surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. We are not to grumble, to be resentful against God. In part, well, it's wrong, but the reason we do that is we forget what God has done for us in the past. The second thing he says about them is that they are fault finders. Um, they're complainers. And it's like, well, you know, a grumbler and a complainer seem to be one and the same thing. But a fault finder or a complainer is one who finds someone to blame. You may grumble, you know, this, this background noise of grumbling, but a complainer points the finger at someone and says, this is why my life is not the way that it should be. A fault finder is much more specific discontented with the condition of life that God has assigned to them, they speak harshly against him. Why would any rational person do this? Um, well, let's be fair, life is hard. There are difficulties. There are things that make life sometimes almost unbearable. But that's not what's going on here with the false teachers. The reason for their grumbling, the reason for their complaining, is they are discontented because they follow their own evil desires. Their conduct is not governed by the law of God, but by their own law. They are dreamers. They live in an unreality. One author has written on practical atheism, and he writes this. All sin is founded in a secret atheism. Atheism is the spirit of every sin. All the wicked inclinations in the heart and struggling motions, secret repinings or frettings, self-applauding confidences in our own wisdom, strength, etc., envy, ambition, revenge, are sparks from this latent fire. The language of every one of these is, I would be a lord to myself. 
and would not have a God superior to me. And now it begins to come together. These dreamers, these people who live in unreality, they have reshaped reality. And therefore, they're really kind of unhappy with the way life is. They are grumblers and they are complainers. If we follow our own lust, then it stands to reason that we will grumble and complain against God, who thinks he has the right to tell us what to do, that he has the right to put us where we are in life. But somehow God thinks he's the boss of us. Well, yes, if you follow your own desires, that's, that would be the natural conclusion. But if you follow God's desires, you will come up with something quite different. Some would say that real life can never measure up to fantasy. Well, if you live in unreality, then reality will, in fact, come as a great shock to you. And grumbling and complaining would be the natural response to that. They think they can go against God and nothing will happen to them. But they live in unreality. It goes on to say that they are boasters and flatterers. Okay. Verse 16, they're grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Boasting is the result of being self-centered. Look how great I am. It is a result of failing to see, uh, see yourself as you truly are. David wrote in Psalm 12, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says we will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Certainly is the case with these false teachers. They refuse to see that God is, in fact, the master of the universe and that human beings are subject to him. We are his subjects. He is the king. In Jeremiah 9, this is what the Lord says. Let the wise man, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. All that we have comes from God. All that we are comes from God. How is it that we can boast? As Paul told the Corinthians, everything you've received is from God. Why do you then boast? But it is interesting, fascinating to me, that Jude puts two things together that I would not normally put together. He says they are boastful and they are flatterers. Boastful seems to be all about me, and flattering seems to be all about you. I'm flattering you. Um, in reality, neither, neither boasting or flattery is truth-telling, okay? So it's an unreality. But flattery is dangerous because it allows another to get close to us. We say, well, this guy's nice because he says nice things about me. The flatterer is dangerous because he tells us what we want to hear about ourselves. So in, in reality, the person who is boastful and a flatterer is a very self-centered person because I know that if I flatter you, then you will let me get closer to you and I will benefit in some way from that relationship. 
The false teachers are boasters. They need people to support them, therefore they flatter them. So they get up in the pulpit, if you wish, and they boast about what God has done for them or what God is doing through them or what they know and all these things. And yet at the same time, they flatter the person in the pew because those are the people that put the money in the offering basket. They are, in fact, quite dangerous. One writer says, whenever men refuse to give or refuse God his rightful place in their lives, they inevitably replace him with inferior gods of their own making. That's either me or you. Boasting, flattering. And that's what they hear these men doing. Beginning in verse number 17, Jude tells us what we are to learn. He spent all this time denouncing these men. Now he tells us what we are supposed to do. The tone is completely different. The purpose is to expose and condemn these evil men who are intruders. But now he gives the believers, the true believers, a strategy for how they are, in fact, to live their lives and how they are to fight against these false teachers, these dreamers in the right way. And the Lord willing, we will look at this next week. So now for the sixth sense thing. I've been talking for the last two or three weeks about the false teachers. Have you noticed that not one time in this book, the book of Jude, does Jude talk about false teachers? He doesn't use that expression, false teachers. Does he? I've been saying it. That's what scholars say. That's what commentators say. In verse number 12, which we looked at earlier, he refers to them as shepherds who feed only themselves, which is sort of echoing what we hear in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, And Paul told the Ephesian elders, be shepherds of the house of God. First Peter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. But I don't think that's how Jude necessarily uses it. I think it's more of a metaphor. You know, these people... They are self, so selfish, they are like shepherds who feed only themselves. I don't know that he's necessarily saying that they are teachers, let alone false teachers. So what does that mean? If we read the book of Jude only as an attack on false teachers, we will be focusing on whoever is behind the pulpit, whoever is teaching. I don't think that's what Jude is saying primarily. I think false dreamers, if you wish, are not merely in the pulpit, if even there, but in the pews as well. The sixth sense thing is, remember Bruce Willis all along was seeing things a particular way, and then when he realized, in fact, he was dead, then everything clicked into place. In the same way, we've been talking about false teachers, but what if, in fact, Jude isn't talking about teachers at all, but about those who claim to be the people of God, who are members of the congregation, who, in fact, are infecting the congregation with all of this falseness. We are to be on our guard, not only against those who are in the pulpit that we, you know, pen and paper, make sure this guy is doctrinally straight, but with one another. I don't think we are to be paranoid. 
and we will see this next Sunday in Jude's strategy, how it is as we as God's people are supposed to live. Um, but there is a warning here. It isn't just the guy up here who's like, or the guy doing a podcast or on YouTube or whatever, like, oh, that's a false teacher. Um, no, it's the falseness, I think, even more than the teaching. And again, he doesn't mention teachers at all here. We need to recognize the nature of teaching and learning. This is something I, I, I deal with um, when I teach, and that is teaching and learning doesn't only occur when I want it to. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm up front, I'm the teacher, you're the students, you're listening, I will speak, you will learn. That's not the way it always works. In fact, it's not the way it works generally, I would argue. We need to make a distinction between learning and acquisition. Learning is something that we do. It involves conscious action, conscious knowledge that is gained through teaching. You hear something and you know the teacher says it and you try to remember it. Is it going to be on the test? That type of thing. That's what learning is. Acquisition is something that happens subconsciously. That we're exposed to something and in some way we get it. We learn it without even realizing it. I mean, have you ever realized, have you, have you ever experienced this, that you listen to something on the radio, a song that you've never heard before, or maybe you've heard it, and, and for the rest of the day, you can't get that song out of your mind. And somebody can ask you the lyrics, and, and you know the lyrics. Whereas something that you've consciously tried to learn, you can't remember. You try and try to learn, and you can't. I would argue that the same thing happens when we meet as the people of God. I would like to think that when we gather, Damon speaks, you all learn. That that's the process that happens. And that's not, hopefully that works on some level. But the reality is as we have conversations after the service, and we've had some wonderful conversations after the service, that things that are said not from a prepared text, not from sermon notes, but just in conversation, that we learn. We acquire knowledge that way. So if you're thinking, as I've been presenting it, that the false teachers are in the pulpit and they're teaching false doctrine, it's like, ooh, this guy's dangerous. We've got to throw him out. The reality is it is in our conversations with one another that if we're not careful, we will be dreamers, we will be grumblers, we will be complainers. Hidden rocks, clouds without water. No, no one wants to think I'm a false person, that I have false doctrine. And I don't know that anyone ever thinks, oh, I'm going to fall into false doctrine. There's something, it's like, you imagine that could never happen to me. I, I would never believe something that is wrong. And by God's grace, that wouldn't happen to us, but we are sinners, we are fallen. We need each other. And the Lord willing, we'll see this next week, what we are to do to help each other. Because if not, one of us could go astray and then infect someone else and infect someone else. We live in the midst of a pandemic. We know about this, you know, 
transmission of things. Um, it isn't just the guy up here. Do keep check on me, please. But it is the person in the pew in our casual conversations. I've always been struck by the verse where Jesus says that we will be judged for every idle word. So it isn't just the thing that I consciously, I'm going to say something bad against that person. I'm going to say something wrong. No, it's something that we just casually say and thoughtlessly say, we will be judged for every idle word. So as we meet together, as we spend time together, we are in fact teaching each other, whether we recognize it or not. And it may be that some unintentional actions, some casual statements, will leave the deepest and the longest impressions. You need to be aware of that. And again, as I said, the Lord willing, next week we will see, what do you do? What do you do to combat this danger of false teaching? Let's pray together. Our Father, we tend to think in terms of cause and effect. One teaches, another learns. One who is designated teacher, one is designated student. There's this exchange that is supposed to go on. But we see it doesn't always work that way. In the same way, these people that Jude writes against, people are expecting if they're false, they'll be exposed, they'll be judged. You will strike them dead. And in fact, they are in the midst of the congregation. They share meals with other believers. They are hidden rocks. They are quite dangerous. By your grace, I ask, I plead that you would keep us from false doctrine, but equally that you would keep us from wrong behavior that would in fact teach someone else to do what is wrong. That someone by seeing our example might be led astray. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if, if his eating meat would lead somebody astray, he would not eat meat the rest of his life. Each one of us needs to be concerned for what we say, how we live, how we act. May we not be dreamers living in unreality. May we not be grumblers or complainers. May we not act in an ungodly way. I thank you that you've not left us alone to work this out on our own, to do it in our own strength. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would guide and direct our living, our thoughts, our speech. Jesus told us that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. We pray that this would be the case in our generation and here in our congregation. I thank you for this first day of a new week that we can worship you. Now, as we go into the rest of the week, 
May we have a sense of your presence. May we look to you for wisdom and guidance. But above all, may we remember that you love us. And you've proved that love by sending your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.